And now, broadcasting from atop a secret location somewhere on Fort Myers Beach, Florida, it's How About That with Brian Howe. And now, your host, Brian Howe. Yes. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good at whatever time it is you're listening to my podcast, you are tuned in to Brian Howe with how about that? And this week, I have to tell you, I'm very excited because this is something I've always wanted to do myself. I've always wanted to become a sleuth, a a man who gets into other people's shit. And this is the perfect opportunity for me to operate a wonderful podcast with a wonderful person. This is a, a man I'm going to introduce you to. His name is David B. Watts. He's actually a private investigator. He's also an author. He, he writes fiction and non-fiction books, but we're not going to talk too much about that. We're here to get into the nitty-gritties of being a, a private eye, a Columbo. Listen, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a private detective. I wanted to snoop around in other people's shit, and, and you know, and, and I watched all the TV series, you know, Columbo and all the you know, all the stuff with private detectives. I thought it was a wonderful world to live in. And today we have a special guest. It's David B. Watts, who actually is a private investigator. So I want you to um, welcome him on board, please. David, it's a pleasure to have you here. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure, Brian. Absolutely. Now, let's get into some nitty gritty here. But you started off, of course, as, as a as a very young man in New Jersey and you became a cop. What 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 made you want to become a cop? Obviously, you wanted to stop crime and, and all the rest of it. But was there something else? Is, is your family based in the in the police department, or if you have family members, as I do? Uh, no. Um, in fact, when I look, well, wait a minute. My grand, my great grandfather was a uh, Pennsylvania railroad cop, and I didn't even know that till I was forty. So the answer mm. is no. I didn't have any. Uh, uh, impetus to join the police department. I needed a job. Really? I needed, yeah. I was uh, I was laid off from my uh, position as cost accounting clerk. Is anything more boring? Cost accounting clerk at Lockheed uh, Electronics uh, in North Plainfield, New Jersey. Uh, on the eve of my birthday, I was laid off. So I I was walking around in my neighborhood and uh, I saw a young cop standing on the corner and he said to me, "Shouldn't you have a job? Shouldn't you be in school? What are you doing walking around?" And I said, I'm looking for a job. <laughs> okay, well, that, that's a fair comment. I mean, the police, as you know, is a, an incredibly well-paid job. Well done. <laughs> oh, yes. I, I, I always strive for the top. <laughs> you do indeed. We do So you must have, in your time as a cop, I mean, I know you've been involved in many, many um, crimes and, and solving crimes, some of which are local to where I actually live, and we'll be talking about that a little bit later. But my, my, my uncle and many, two of my uncles were actually police in the police force in England. And uh, they told me many times that they would often run into what they called bad cops, cops that were in it for the wrong reasons and cops that would falsify information and would try and trick subjects who they really basically knew might be innocent, but they would try and stitch them. Is that true? It, it, does that still happen or is the police force self-governing cleaned itself up somewhat well i think today is a lot different than uh, 50 years ago when i was a young police officer today you have uh, first of all you have to have a college degree whether it be criminal justice or public administration you have to have a college degree in order to be hired in the police department and then oh, they wow. have uh, they have training now that consists of uh, eight weeks uh, very much like military basic training I went to two weeks of classroom, and they handed me a gun, showed me how to work it, gave me a badge, and off on the street I went. So th these days, the the officers are much more educated. They're tuned into the community. They're given sensitivity training. They're, uh, and the other thing, of course, is some of them are even wearing body cameras, so they, they better not do anything. Uh, yeah, I think that's the general rule now. I think most police forces are now uh, subjecting their, their officers to wearing police cams, which obviously yeah. shows that there has been a problem in the past. But, uh, well, but there know, we times, are. Uh, times change. I mean, when I, when I started in 1961, um, uh, I didn't. I wasn't able to talk into my collar the way these fellows do today with their radios. Right. Uh, we 
we had a brass key and we walked up to the corner and stuck the key into a uh, call box and we were able to talk to the desk lieutenant. And that was our communication. Uh, you were on your own out there. A lot of the guys, uh, as I say, I was 21 years old when I started and the fellows that I worked with, they were all World War II and Korean vets. They'd been on the job maybe 12, 15 years and uh, they were a tough bunch. They'd seen a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In their day. Yeah. And they were tough and they, they, uh, they treated criminals accordingly <laughs> yeah yeah i must remember that as 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 a as a young boy in portsmouth england we had several on the beat police we don't see on the beat policemen anymore police that walk around a neighborhood but we right. used to have them regularly in my area and and we needed them because it was a slightly poor rough area and uh, i remember distinctly one day i'd done something like stole a bottle of milk off someone's doorstep and the cop had seen me do it, and he didn't say anything to me. He just came up behind me and smacked me around the back of the head and said, you do that again, and you're in trouble. And you have to respect that because he could have busted me. He could have taken me in. He could have accused me of stealing. But that taught me very early, very quickly, I'm not going to do that again. You know, so I think the difference is now in police is that they can't touch you. They're not allowed to, they're not even allowed to swear at you, I don't think, particularly. But as a young kid, a clip around the ear is much more effective than a few kind words, you know? Yeah, the problem, the problem with that is it's, it gets to be excess sometimes. And, and uh, uh, I did work with officers who, uh, who carried uh, the physical thing to excess. Not many, I must say. And even in those years when, you could get away with it. Uh, the guys that I worked with were, by and large, uh, pretty careful about that. They didn't get carried away with violence. Right. But right. There, there were some. There were some. And and how long were you actually in the police force? Just nine years. I woke up one morning and <laughs> said, "This is <laughs> this is this is crazy." I started out as a patrolman. Then I, after a year on the job, I married my high school sweetheart. Beautiful. Uh, we, we've been married 57 years. Wow. And I just told her last night, I want you to know, darling, I've been faithful to you 56 out of those 57. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I, uh, she's a wonderful gal. She worked with me through the whole, st uh, the whole, the whole Megillah. And, uh, but I was drafted one month after uh, we got married, and we uh, the army put me into the military police because of my one year experience. So for two years, uh, we joke about this. I spent mm. two years overseas in combat in Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah, that's a uh, tough area, man. man uh, you know, you get war area. breakout in Massachusetts, and yes. all hell breaks loose. Well, the sign said, "Dogs and soldiers keep off the lawn," which uh, <laughs> which was the welcome wagon. <laughs> there yeah. yeah so then i came i came back from uh, uh from massachusetts back from the army went back on the police department and it wasn't too long before they in their wisdom made me a detective they put me into this special unit uh working on gambling narcotics prostitution um, abc laws and so forth and that was the that was the turning point in my life i mean uh, to go from the uniform into plain clothes and begin doing surveillance of the bad guys and uh, yeah. uh, going after the druggies and uh, the drug dealers and so forth. Uh, that was that was a, uh, an epiphany for me, and I think it, it has held true to today. Okay, well, here's a question for you. How do you find the prostitutes, and how much, and how much should I pay? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a little out of touch on that right now. <laughs> Well, we know somebody, Brian, from a previous podcast, so we can. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. But yes. the other thing that fascinates me is, is is the one thing that I find very, very frustrating with with police forces in 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 every area. They have a genuine problem in cracking down on drug dealers and drug dens and and drug factories and all this other stuff. I mean, how did you go about? finding these these people that are out there distributing horrible horrible drugs to people well narcotics uh, investigations um is 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 basically informants that that's the way it works that's why that's why working drugs is a dirty deal it mm. really is it's uh, you you uh, bust somebody with a little bit of drugs in their pocket they're really a user and then you threaten to send them away for six months unless they tell you who they bought it from and then you send them in to buy some more and uh, it's it has to be done you know it has to be done you have to get the drugs off the street and the only way to infiltrate it which is the right right word is to use people to do it and, right uh, that's 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 the main way it's done 
course. Yeah, I suppose so. What What, what are your thoughts um, on on the current situation regarding marijuana? I, I know that all the, around the the country, in fact, almost around the world now, the the sentences for marijuana are are being reduced tremendously. In fact, it's being legalized now recreationally in many many states around around the states, and and also of course, in certain countries around the world. Do you think that's a, a, a good thing, or do you think there is a handicap to that? In, in oh, absolutely. I think we should have more drunk drivers on the road. Um, <laughs> we should have more, more people uh, out of their heads going 80 miles an hour down the interstate. I think that's fabulous, don't you? <laughs> well, for, from experience, I can tell you this, David, that when you smoke heroic amounts of pot, you're not going to do 80 miles an hour anywhere. You <laughs> might crawl along at 15 miles an hour with, with the windows down, <laughs> but you are, not, you are never going to get busted for speeding. Dave, you know, no, I, I, it's just part of my nature to be against that. I, I don't think that legalizing another mind bending drug is, is, is going to do anything good for society. I just, I just well, don't think so. now maybe, maybe changing, maybe changing the punishment. I don't, I don't have a problem with users. You know, I, uh, you don't have to put somebody away for a couple of years for minor offenses. I agree with that. I do. Uh, yeah. But I'm, I, but legalizing marijuana disturbs me. It's just part of my nature. It goes back 50 years. I can't get out of the, I can't get out of the mode. Yeah. But you must admit, well, maybe you won't admit, but there are certainly now very much evidential evidence there that, that, that certain sorts of marijuana are very, very beneficial. And I know several people that have been addicted to a drug called Xanax, which is legal if it's prescribed. It's a perfectly so-called safe tablet. It is not safe. You, it, it, it really does mess you up if you take it long term and you become really quite dependent on it, which is not happening with pot and pot has well, the some pharmaceuticals of the same... uh, absolutely the pharmaceuticals the doctors been all over the news uh, that has to change i mean yes. we, we really don't we really don't need in fact i i went to have my teeth cleaned the other day and the dentist uh, said to me that uh, he had just taken a class he likes to keep up with things and the teacher the professor said that uh, when people have root canals, instead of giving them Percocet, they would do much, much better with a couple of leaves. Yeah. And, and yeah. Uh, uh, this overprescribing is a very, very serious problem. It really is. And uh, here in Florida, there is a huge clampdown now on people that go in and say they're you know, they suffer from anxiety and they suffer from this, that, and the other, and they're prescribed, you know, anxiety drugs, which is which is a major problem. And 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 the, but the opiates are the are the things that really bother me. I mean, I'm. I, I'm in the music business, and I have seen multitudes of people who are very talented ruin their entire lives because of a few tablets and uh, and Xanax also. I mean, and also, of course, some of them were just potheads, and uh, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that marijuana should be used to such excess, but I do believe that there are several strands or... Um, sorts of marijuana that are very beneficial and can actually wean people off of things like heroin and opiate abuse and pain pills and uh, i think there is a usage for marijuana and i think well, we are I, I scratching the surface of it i don't think we've really got into the benefits of marijuana the way that we should have done because the pharmaceutical companies of course don't want that to happen and people who uh, take the marijuana for uh, cancer for problems where uh, other other drugs don't help I, how could i be against that I don't right. Know. If right. you're if you're having terrible pain and marijuana eases the pain then uh, why not? <clears throat> Medical use is, is certainly something that nobody can really argue about. Right. Absolutely. All right. Now, moving along, you you finally left the police force, of course, and you, I don't know if I can mention the actual company that you worked for, but it was an insurance company. You moved into um, insurance adjusting. Um, and But first of all, they said, no, 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 you don't you don't meet the minimal qualifications. I mean, how, yeah. how, how difficult does that have to be? Because you've been a policeman, a highly respected policeman of a, of a reasonable standard, and they won't accept you as an insurance company. It's given me a whole new insight into insurance companies. I've got to tell you so what happened there well i i looked around and i saw that my fellow officers uh, a lot of them were depressed a lot of them were drunks many of them were divorced yeah because this was the end of the 60s when we had the riots in 67 and 68 i was in the plainfield riot in 67 Ooh. and i was 27 28 years old at the time so when you look around and you see that uh, that the people who have 14 15 16 years in just waiting for their pension and here i i had less than 10 years in and i thought to myself i'm not 30 yet what am I doing here? Mm -hmm. So what 
can I do, since I don't have much experience at anything other than being a cop and a detective? So I went up to an insurance company and I asked them, do you have any openings for investigating? And she said, well, we call them adjusters. It was this 50-ish lady sitting uh, in the middle of the, uh, the big room you walk into with all the glass and everything. And uh, so I said, well, I'm interested. She said, well, we're opening a new office in Greenbrook and uh, we are, we have some openings. And she started to hand me an application and she said, what uh, what college did you graduate from? I said, well, I only went a year to, I only went a year to Rutgers. I, I dropped out and became a police officer. She pulled the application back. She said, well, we only hire college graduates. Hmm. I said, oh. Uh, she put her head down, started doodling, and I walked away. And I got to the door, and I thought to myself, "What the hell? I, <laughs> I've got nothing to lose." I turned around, walked back. She looked up, like, "Why are you still here?" I said, "What you just said is the stupidest thing I've ever heard." All due respect, ma'am, but would you really hire a 22-year-old kid just out of college who knows nothing versus somebody who's had nearly a decade of police work and and, and detective work? Mm-hmm. So she looked at me, tapped her pencil a few times and said, you sit down. I sat down. And a fellow came out and a manager came out. He interviewed me for about an hour and then he handed me a bunch of tests, a battery of tests. And he came back in later on and he said, you know, I'm going to go to work for you and get you hired. By the way, I don't have a college education either and I work here just fine. So you have to, you have to, you have to speak up for yourself. Yeah. the, the, The glaring thing that you just said there is something that I think may have escaped some listeners, but what you said was very, very interesting. When you are approached by an adjuster from an insurance company, you are being investigated. Is that right? He's not there to be your friend. He's there to see if, you know, well, that he is an investigator. Yes, he's investigating the facts yeah. of the accident or the incident, yeah. whatever it was. Sure. So yes. they're probably just as sneaky as, as cops, really, you know. <laughs> well, uh, well, look, they're looking out for the interest of the insurance company. That's yeah. their job, to look out for the interest of the insurance Right. Whatever and- that may be. At the point, at that point in time. Okay. Well, I, I don't want to spend too much time on the insurance business because obviously we want to get into into what we're talking about here, which is the private eye business. And I, and I know that I've you know I've seen so many TV series and it looks so exciting. It looks so wonderful. Although they do get beat up a lot and yet recover so remarkably quickly. Um, <laughs> when you when you got into this business, what was your first? Your first job, I'm guessing it was really quite boring. I, I don't know. Yes. Um, I guess my my first job, that's a good question. I think it was just a motor vehicle accident, um, head-on collision in one of these rural roads out here in uh, in northern New Jersey. And uh, But the interesting part about it, I guess, is the fact that uh, the lawyer that hired me to do that was an ex-FBI agent. He liked the report that I wrote and uh, forwarded me, so to speak, to his law firm in Morristown, and then they started hiring us, and they also worked for an insurance company that started hiring us, and so forth and so on. It sort of built from there. Mm-hmm. So, if I were, if I were to, let's say, pretend I had an injury and couldn't work, and 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 I suppose that's some of the work that you've done for for businesses that are paying an employee who who claims he's unable to work. What do you do? How how do you follow them? How do you um do you follow them? I mean, do you just sit outside? the house in an unmarked car and just well the the difference between surveillance in law enforcement and in the private sector is is very very uh, gross it's a a very big difference really in law enforcement you're surveilling criminals uh, narcotic guys gambler guys who are looking for you they're expecting and they take circuitous routes they sometimes go down a one-way street and back up to see if anybody's following Hmm. the average everyday person who has an insurance claim or an employee who is uh, saying he's injured and isn't they don't have that they don't have that attitude so it's a lot easier to follow someone who has an insurance claim and who's falsifying it or overstating it than it is uh, the criminal so when i spent those years as a detective uh following the guys that were looking for me to follow them when i then transferred over to following everyday people how easy it was because uh, they weren't expecting it and uh, you could you could pretty much follow them pretty easily so if i was let's just presuppose that i was fiddling you know and and getting away with some sort of scam on the insurance department how would you track me how, what, what would you do what what should i look out for <laughs> i'm not going to tell you what to look out for <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's telling you as we speak brian i'm sorry <laughs> if i told you i'd have to kill you, you know? yeah <laughs> 
Well, uh, several, actually, several people have tried. Basically, the insurance company or the client, whoever it may be, the attorney for the insurance company, gives us as much information as possible. That would be, uh, you know, uh, their address, their description. If I had a photograph of them, it would be fine, but their date of birth. And then we would do a restricted access online search to find out more about the individual, um, how many kids were in the family, uh, what kind of cars to expect, and so forth. And then we would go out and do a preliminary investigation that would, we would go by the house take a look at it, take a look at the neighborhood to see where there were any opportunities where we could sit. We might put signs on the side of the van that say surveys. Um, I might park the van and then go up to somebody's door and say, hi, I'm expecting a real estate lady by here in an hour or so. Do you mind if I park in front of your house? No, no problem. Uh, if that didn't work, then maybe a police car might go by and instead of having the cops roust us, I would get out of the van, walk over to the cop and say, here, I'm a PI. I'm working on an insurance case. If anybody calls, we're okay. And then they'll leave us alone. So there's a lot of different methods you would use depending on the neighborhood you were in. Mm -hmm. uh, what I used to do is put a hard hat on, take a clipboard, and walk around the neighborhood and take numbers off of telephone poles. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sneaky. Any, any kind of ruse that you could uh, come up with that would fit the occasion would, would yeah. be, uh, be sufficient. Carrying a ladder helps, I, th I find, <laughs> a, an aluminum ladder. <laughs> You can get into anywhere if you carry a ladder. It's amazing. You can walk into cinemas. I know people that have actually done it. They've walked into cinemas to watch movies for free because they carry in a ladder <laughs> and they say that they're there to fix something. I worked on a, uh, on a case for a large uh, corporation and uh, it, was called, it was a product diversion case. Um, I can get into the definition of that if you wish, but that's not the point. Um, mm -hmm. I needed to I needed to get into this small office, so I, I carried a stepladder, a small stepladder. Ah, <laughs> so it's true. Ah, yes. wow. I had my hard I had my hard hat, and I walked into the receptionist, and she looked at me, and I says, "Is it still cold in here?" Because all receptionists are cold. They always have their sweaters, you know. She says, it's freezing. I said, well, let me let me, see, let me take a look. So I got up on the ladder, and I fiddled with the air conditioning duct up there. And I said, well, it's not here. How do I get in the back? She led me into the back. So, so I took my Minox camera out, and I took pictures over every desk. <laughs> wow. Well yeah. done, sir. Well you done. Can, you can you can do that, but it's all it's all understanding human behavior. You know what's going to be acceptable. What's going to yeah. be acceptable. So what's the legality of something like that? I mean, if I if you go in somewhere under false pretenses and get some sensitive information and something like that, could you be in trouble for that? Well, you don't get caught. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I walked into the I walked into the New York Stock Exchange floor once. Wow! Now, now in order to we had a claimant inside there, and we wanted to show that he was still working. And I had one of my young guys with me, and uh, he yeah, said, how are we going? How are we going to get in there? They got security all over the place. I just wait for coffee break. So we gave the other fellow that was with us. We gave him our jackets. Here we have white shirts and ties on, and we put pencils on our ears, and we got on the end <laughs> and the elevator with the rest of them and went up and went in. Huh. I Wow. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the ladder routine works for those of you out there that have aluminum ladders. Uh, just go ahead and do whatever you want to do. As long as you've got the ladder with you, you are not going to get busted. Trust me. But um, let's get back into – I'm being facetious there, by the way, listeners. That, please, don't, please, please don't attempt that, please. <laughs> now, when you – what is what what, what what was the biggest mistake you think you, you you made as a private investigator? Was there someone you were following who turned out to be the wrong ma or the wrong person to follow? Um, did you ever like as a detective, even going to and fro, private investigator or a detective? Do you ever feel like you helped to get a murderer free or or a sexy case? If you, were you sent out on a case that, that the wife hired you and wanted to know if her husband was cheating on her? Did you did you ever do that sort of surveillance work? You know, back in the beginning when Linda and I started on this, we, we took whatever came along because that's what you do. Yeah. Um, and we had a matrimonial case where the husband hired us to follow his wife and we're out on Route 22 driving westbound following the subject. Lo and behold, the client passes us. <laughs> <laughs> he was out there, to, you know. You get you get all kinds of crazy people when it comes to matrimonial cases, um, and you know, mm. there's usually two sides to every story. So, absolutely, we we elected early on to avoid those cases, and uh, and we did. Uh, mm. 
but I, but I have a very funny story to tell you. There's a fellow, Bruce Snyder, had a uh, private investigation case in, in a business in Lansdale, PA. And he told me he didn't work on matrimonial cases either. And he told me the story about this guy that called him and said, I'd like you to follow my wife. He said, I don't work on those kind of cases. He said, but you don't understand. This is important to me. And I really, and, he, and uh, Bruce told him time and time again, no, I will not work on your case. So one morning, Bruce opens the office door at 8 o'clock in the morning. The guy's sitting on the step waiting for him. And he mm. follows him in as Bruce is telling him, I am not working on your case. Bruce sits behind his desk. The fellow sits in front of his desk, and he says, I have your check for $10,000 for you to work on my case. Bruce said, you have my undivided attention. <laughs> Wonder why. So, so, so uh, when I say we never worked on matrimonial cases, we didn't. We always sent him up to Bob Higgins, another PI up in Oxford, New Jersey. He loved him. He was a retired state trooper. He, he worked on those cases uh, a lot, and we sent him a few. But when somebody came up, along and said, uh, look, uh, I'm an attorney. <laughs> um, I had a $10,000 return check for you. So you get yeah. the point. Absolutely. That's when I would become a public, a private investigator too. <laughs> I, I, I would take it to plus tax. Um, <laughs> the fascinating thing about your career, I know for you it's probably a, a, a very minor part of your career, but we had a, a murder case down here, actually just a few streets away from where I live on Fort Myers Beach, Florida. And it was a, a very famous case down here because it was just ridiculous. And I knew you worked on this case and it was uh, in... Uh, the Case. The Morangello case, yes. And yes, uh, yes, yes. what happened with that case? Uh, how did you end up on that job? Okay, the uh, the mayor, former mayor of Fort Myers, Wilbur Smith. Yes, um, he's a, a character. He wears alligator boots into court. He actually has a 14-foot alligator stuffed in his conference room uh, hmm. as you go in, into his office. So he's, he, he hired us uh, to work on uh, the Morangelo case. And we took statements from neighbors. Um, we went to the scene. We went through the uh, through the house and uh, uh, went through all of the papers up in his study. Um, it was interesting to go to the crime scene itself. Yeah. But the story, here's the story. Here's what happened. Uh, Fern Morangelo, his wife, was shot four times in the chest. Her body mm. was found uh, in the water about a quarter of a mile south of their dock. Now, here's a guy who is an aeronautical engineer. He worked for a, for a major military uh, connected company over in, I don't want to say the name of it, over in Miami, and uh, uh, an intelligent, educated guy. Would you really believe he would shoot his wife four times in the chest, drag her out onto the dock, wrap her in a blanket, and throw her in the water? He had a boat. He could have taken her out into the Gulf and sunk her. Yeah. He had a son who didn't get along with his stepmother. Didn't uh, he? Didn't get along with with Fern. They argued all the time. So we went. We went uh, to trial, and there was a hung jury. The jury couldn't convict him. Hmm. Um, six months went by, and the prosecutor came back and retried the case. In the meantime, the son died of a heroin overdose. Oh boy! Now the the fellow that was working with me on it was a retired Miami homicide detective, mm -hmm. Spanish guy, very smart guy. He and I uh, did a lot of looking around. We looked in the condo that they owned in Fort Myers. Uh, uh, there were a couple of glasses on the, on the table, uh, a lot of evidence. Uh, but one of the things that troubled me the most was the van that uh, the son had. It was uh, all blackened, darkened windows, and he ran with a really crazy crowd. Uh, they all used heroin. A couple of them were motorcycle guys. Mm. And uh, I, I told the attorneys, I said, we've got to get inside that van. We've we got to get a court order to take a look at the van. I mean, you know, lawyers can do it as well as police officers. If you have probable cause, you can ask the court for an order. Oh, okay. Uh, but uh, it wasn't to be. And uh, so anyway, the second trial came about and Mr. Morangello was convicted. And today he sits in jail, um, getting older and older. And I, I was always convinced that the son uh, shot his stepmother. Uh, I turned the case over to a group. The name escapes me right now, but they they try to undo uh, cases that uh, that seem to be uh, questionable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they got back to me and, and said that uh, the the case didn't exactly suit their needs for one reason or another. But that case has always bothered me. It it still bothers me every once in a while. I think of Don Morangello sitting in jail. But don't you think that with his son? Uh, now, now I'm not sure if his son committed suicide before he was sentenced or, 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 or after? Well, it was an overdose. It wasn't a suicide. It was accidental. 
and he it wasn't suicide. Ah. It, it was he 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 overdosed. But was this before the trial or or, or during the trial? Before the second trial. Okay. So in that case, why didn't the the father say, "Look, it wasn't me. It was my he son." Did. He did. Oh, he did. he did. And the prosecutor expected it. Uh, they just weren't able to sell it to the jury, to the new jury. Because to me, yeah. that would have sounded like a, a, a pretty good excuse. I was covering for my son, which, uh, of course, is illegal anyway, so he would still be in some sort of trouble. But Not really. Not really. Uh, if he was covering for his son, that, that I don't think that there's a uh, there's a statute. There has to be a statute. See, the thing is, uh, George, the George Cavada and I sat down with him, with our client, and we asked him specific questions, tough, hard questions. Mm-hmm. And he was vague. He was, he was, uh, he, he wouldn't, this is in the beginning now. Right. He wouldn't really, he wouldn't really tell us uh, answers because he was covering for his son. And then after his son was dead, well, then he goes into court and explains what happened and nobody believed him. So. Oh, so there is a small chance that he's in prison for doing nothing apart from covering for his son. Right. Well, that'd be terrible, yeah. wouldn't it? That'd be shocking. I mean, that would yes. be, yeah. it's his own fault. I mean, he's pretty pretty bloody stupid to do that of course but uh what did the prosecutors i mean going into the trial do do prosecutors sometimes just make the best case they have number one and number two do you did they do you feel like they felt that the husband did it or the son did it what what how does that figure in well you have to understand the job of the prosecutor the prosecutor is not although they are required to produce exculpatory evidence that is true but they're not supposed to try your case for you i mean they're supposed to uh they're supposed to come up with the evidence that they have that they believe uh, shows that the person's in, uh, guilty. So it's up to the defense. And uh, hmm. there's another factor, too. Once you have a mistrial, if the decision is to go back and try it again, everybody has a better shot, but the prosecutor has a much better advantage going into a second trial because they know what the defense is going to be um, and how the, how the various witnesses are going to testify. There's a whole plethora of uh, reasons why the prosecutor is at an advantage in the second trial. Well, it's it didn't help him, did it? Because he's in prison, and uh, I, I'm guessing he's there for quite a while now. Well, it's for life. Yeah, It's a life sentence, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Now, you also had a case in southwest Florida where a doctor was accused of rape, and I think it was known as the, the Black Widow case. Did, did you remember that one? Well, I was the one that called it that in my book. This was a, a doctor who uh, had sex with a patient, and you don't do that. <clears throat> but but it, you have to back up a little bit. The the woman involved had been married four times, hmm. and the uh, the last time her, her husband died, the last husband died of a heart attack on the steps of the courthouse. Uh, <laughs> she was a she she was a nurse. Oh, there and, we go. There we and, go. <laughs> and she she. Uh, was a blonde, curvaceous woman, and she she asked her boyfriend, "Do you know of a doctor that I can sue because I'm running out of money?" It's a, so normal she, it's a normal question. It's a normal question. Well, yeah. I mean, you know. So she she made an appointment and she explained to the receptionist that I work, I don't get off till five. Can I please come and see the doctor? I have uh, neurological problems and I really need to see. Hmm. He was a neurologist. So she goes in to see him. She's wearing a thong and uh, she seduces him. Then she goes, she waits three days and instead of going for uh, the rape kit where they they take uh, samples and so forth. She doesn't do that, and she's a nurse. She should know better. She goes to the police and complains that she was assaulted, sexually assaulted by this doctor. Um, Hmm. So the police suggests to her to give him a call and see if he'll come over to her house. Lo and behold, they're hiding. This is as corny as can be. This is like the Keystone Cop. Yeah. They're hiding behind a curtain in the house. The two police over, the woman and a man. And uh, the doctor comes and makes a fool out of himself. But, but before they get there, the woman says, should I get him into the bedroom? She's so enthusiastic about it. It's all tape recorded. And uh, they say, no, no, no. Just, just let him put himself in the soup. So uh, they jump out from behind the curtain and they arrest it was kind of sad but uh, <laughs> i still don't i don't still don't quite understand all that because all right he was wrong but he was seduced presumably and 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 maybe he did do house calls I don't, you know, <laughs> in his defense you know maybe he did go and see people that couldn't get out and about to his to his surgery i, I don't know that's that's a strange one but he was found guilty obviously and then he served 
Actually, and- I did a background on her, and my invest my investigation made her look uh, pretty poorly. You see, she really wasn't after sending the guy to jail. She was after suing him. Money later. Yeah, she yeah. was after the money. We did a uh, a deposition. Of she didn't know that we had the information that we had. Ah. So when our attor- when our attorney asked her, well, how many times have you been married? She says, I don't know, a few. That's a hell of an answer, isn't it? Yeah, a few. He said, Well, would it surprise you if I said three? She said, no. He said, how about four? She said, could be. So he wow. said, do you, remember, do you remember Mr. Tiluxing? And her response was to rear back and say, how did you find out about that? Oh, so, right. Um, uh, we had enough, enough on her that she did not want to come back with a civil suit. Right. Okay. But, yeah. But then yeah. then the our attorney, which was Mr. Smith again, he worked it out with the prosecutors that uh, there would be no jail time, that he would pay a fine, and that he would lose his doctor's license, which he did. So he lost his license. I hope he had a good time. I hope it was worth it. Yeah, all because she had an obsession with wedding cake. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> yes. You know, yes. It, it's just, it's sad how these things turn out. It, I want to ask I'm sorry, Brian. I stepped on them. Carry sorry. on. Carry on. No, I want to ask David. You know, one of the things that bothers me is, and I don't know that a lot of people know this. I, I had a friend that found out the hard way. If the the police can talk to you, they can say anything. They can lie. They can they can tell you things that aren't true to get you to make a statement. Um, is is that true for in your line of work too? I mean, if you tell me a bunch of lies and I cop to something, that's still okay. Well. Uh, it is. It is. The police don't have to uh, tell you the truth. They can trick you. This is one reason why, in the current state of affairs uh, politically, that uh, they don't want people to be interviewed uh, by the FBI, because all you have to do is make a mistake in speaking to the FBI, and you can be charged with uh, perjury. Wow. So, so you have to uh, you have to be careful when if you're a defendant, uh, you you don't speak to the police. You say, "Where's my lawyer?" But you really should you ever real? I mean, I I know this as a former police officer. This is going to probably bother you, but should should a person ever talk to the police? I mean, the thing is, you I have a friend who who said some things that that really really wasn't even involved with the case and ended up getting in trouble. That's Be- right. Because yeah. the police are like, we're your buddies. Hey, we're not after you. We want to get this other guy. Tell us what you know. Well, you have to be careful. I, I If I were if I were going to be questioned by the police, I'd say, look, I'll talk to you. I'll give you all the inf- information you want, but I want my attorney present. Anytime. Well, yeah. If, if you suspect even remotely that you're going to become um, a person of interest, let's say, uh, you need your attorney there. Yeah, uh, that I very much agree with because I had an insurance claim going on once um, over a, a, a broken car window or something. I'm not really sure what it was. And the insurance company were going to fight me for it and they were starting to investigate how the windscreen got broken and all the rest of it. I don't know how it got broken, but they were insinuating that I, and as soon as I got word that they wanted to come and interview me, I hired an attorney straight away. And they were, suddenly they were as nice as pie and they paid up. But if they, yes. if I hadn't done that, they would have been on me and, and, and accusing me of having done it myself and to falsify whatever, you know. I, I know that's where they were going to go with it. So I was lucky. So in future, everybody, if you have to fight with an insurance company, don't do it on your own because you're going to get stuffed hire a good attorney absolutely that's highly recommended now you also had another case which you know because of my sexual preferences i i I say that lightheartedly but you um you discovered Somebody who had died from autoerotic asphyxia. Oh, which... I know where you're going. I know where you're going. Yeah, well, they I, started. I, they I need started to know how to do it. it. <laughs> I want to know how to do it. You see, because I've I've been unsuccessful on a couple of occasions, and I just wanted to just to bring almost. this into. <laughs> Well, let me just say that if, if you had been unsuccessful, you would not be talking to me now. Um, well, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. So what, well, this started what out happened? As a mis- it started out as a missing person. And yeah. um, the, the two gay fellows uh, lived in a uh, house uh, out here in the country, and one of them turned up missing. So uh, the, the other one went to his attorney and uh, said that uh, he needed help because the police really didn't believe him. I guess the state troopers came and they 
they sort of scoffed at the whole thing and, and, and left. So he, he went to a local attorney, and the attorney was used to hiring me for different things. So he called me into the office and gave us uh, whatever information we could have, uh, and we started investigating it. We went to all the bars that the person would, would likely have been gone uh, would likely have gone to, and there were scuff marks in the driveway and the gravel of, of apparently a body being, being dragged. Uh, we found that the car... Uh, was found in a uh, New York City uh, parking garage. Uh, mm. There were there were no fingerprints. Uh, the trunk was uh, was uh, pristine. There was no nothing to go on. And I have to give my wife credit. She said, "You know, if if uh, the if the, the missing guy had met with someone from out of the area, someone from the city, the only thing that these people from the city know about our area is our two reservoirs." Mm. Um, there's a Spruce Run Reservoir and Round Valley Reservoir. She says, I'll tell you right now, he's in the reservoir near it. So four or five months went by over the winter, and I got a call one Saturday morning from a fellow that I know downtown. He said, you better get over to Round Valley. They found a body. Mm. So Linda was right. Uh, a man had been walking his dog, and the dog discovered the body. So I drove over, and there was the police with the yellow tape and all that, and they recognized me, and they said, I think this might be the guy you're looking at. This might be the guy you're looking for. So I went under the tape, went up there, and the body was, uh, let me, uh, a fetal position but upright oh uh, uh, on his knees and he elbows uh, he was completely weathered I mean uh, the skin was uh, leathery yeah um, his most of his head was over 20 feet away from uh, the animals and uh, his jawbone was there teeth were all over the place but he had three they looked like ice skate uh, laces around his neck mm, that's a hell of an orgasm yes there were three <laughs> or four of these uh, <laughs> around his neck and mm. uh, the, the way they got him out of there was to slide him onto a four by eight sheet and they, wow. they did an autopsy they took some of the skin off his thumb and they were able to identify him as our guy nobody knows what happened there uh, whether it was uh, we don't think it was the the other partner because we ran him on the polygraph and he passed so mm -hmm. we we believe that uh, the the guy was Fooling around with somebody else, it got carried away, and the person panicked, took him in his car, dumped his body up on the Round Valley Reservoir, and then drove the car to New York, parked it in a garage. Wow. So, we'll, never, so it, we'll never know who did that. No, so it is true that, the, you know, there are lots of murderers that have never, ever been caught, and Absolutely. they are still loose. And uh, I don't encourage it, but it is true. <laughs> No, no, that's, that's actually quite sad. Earlier on, I think you said that your wife didn't enjoy doing the marital cases. and, and, and Neither it, of us did, no, we, we really didn't. Like really? It. So is there a particular reason for that? Is it just because it just gets too close to home? <laughs> or <is> no. It... <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, actually, the, the, the rationale for that is, is uh, it takes two to tango, and usually there's, there's more reasons why. It's not just one person's fault all the time. Right. And another right. another reason another reason was uh, I recall one one case we worked on early on where we followed the woman and she met this guy in in a in a motel and it was a motel where you walk along the outside and the doors are all there you know a red roof inn yes a yes, red roof right. and, and we were down in the parking lot and it was it was like two degrees out and mm -hmm. we're sitting there freezing you can't run the engine because obviously they'll know somebody's in the car so we're freezing in the van and. They're in the room. Linda says, "Do you think they're a little warmer than we are?" <laughs> so, wow. So that was another reason, you know. Just uh, it's yeah, just nasty. Yeah, yeah. It's nasty, nasty work. Nasty yeah. Work. Do you carry a gun? Are you allowed to carry a gun in your in your line? Um, I did carry a gun in the uh, '80s and '90s um, when I was in the field a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't anymore. Um, uh, my usual reaction to that question is. Uh, well, I thought I was among friends. I didn't think I needed to carry a gun today. But uh, in New Jersey, it's very difficult to get a license to carry a gun. You have to go before a judge. You have to show cause. You have to bring your attorney. And hmm. then you have to renew it every year. And you have to qualify every year. So it got to, it got to be a pain. Yeah. So I, yeah. You know, and then the responsibility of carrying. And by the way, a gun does not protect you. No, it doesn't protect you. No, no, no. it doesn't. I mean, but it's better to have one and not need it than need one and not have one, I think. So, Absolutely. You know. Um, tried now, by 12 rather than carried by, what is it, carried by six, you know. That's right. 
apps yeah. tried by 12 or, or carried by six. And I think I know which way I'd rather go. Now, you did some work for the organization known as Whitney Houston, of course, and uh, sadly, yeah. she's no longer with us. And so you were doing personalized security for these people or was it some other service? A little bit of that, but uh, Tom Weisenbeck was an attorney who uh, represented the Whitney Houston family per se. Uh, yeah, not not the corporation, but the family. And uh, whenever anything untoward took place, which was uh, quite Tom, a lot, I would imagine, in the, in the, in the Houston family. Bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Tom would call us, and whatever the exercise was, <clears throat> we would we would do. The one that's particularly interesting was uh, uh, three young black fellows in long black leather coats went into Tiffany's in New York, mm-hmm. and they said they were there to pick up. Whitney's jewelry that she ordered. And mm. the clerk said, I don't know anything about it. And they acted indignant and this and that. They actually conned Tiffany out of about a hundred thousand, ninety or a hundred thousand dollars worth of jewelry mm. and walked out walked out the door. Fortunately for us, they left a phone number. <laughs> I don't really I don't really know why or how that happened, but we had a phone number which we ran down and which brought us to an apartment in Union, New Jersey, and we did some surveillance and uh, once we spotted the guys, we uh, we lit, uh, notified the local police and they had him arrested. So that was kind of funny that that Whitney was uh, name was dropped. Yeah, but she wasn't Maybe. actually involved in the crime, right? That, no, that, no, that but, the name. exactly. Those were some and, dumb criminals. They left their phone. <laughs> they left yeah, their they phone. Left, they left. No, they left a phone number. It wasn't theirs, but it was an, to an apartment that they visited. So we were able to. Uh, we were able to get them. It's like a friend's phone number, something like that. Yes, and then and then Whitney's uh, brother was beat up pretty badly by the East Orange Police Department in a bar, and they arrested him because he refused to leave. So then they beat him up. So we were called, and I I went to to meet with Tom Weisenbeck and Whitney's brother. Um, he explained the situation. So Tom wanted me to go into that bar and take statements. Yeah. Now this is a really really rough neighborhood. I mean. Uh, a really tough place for my Irish face to show up. So I mm. called the East Orange Police Department. I said, do you have any retired um, African-American guys that uh, would be able to help me out? And they did. He was about six foot five, bald head, great big man. He was a nice, jovial guy. And he said, what? <laughs> you better not go in there alone. <laughs> so oh. so he, he and I went in, and it turned out to be just the opposite. Everybody was... Uh, very cooperative. They gave me statements and explained how the uh, the three the two black police officers beat the bejesus out of out of the kid and finally got him out. Uh, he had a broken jaw and uh, so forth. So mm. what Tom Rosenberg did was uh, turn the tables. He said, "We're going to sue the police department." He, so the whole thing kind of went away, you know, because I yeah. took state I took the statements that that showed that uh, there was. Uh, uh, too much, too much violence involved. They didn't need to do that. Yeah, that, a similar thing happened to me just a couple of weeks ago. I was in a bar and I'd had a little too many to drink, I think. And the bouncers, three of them, came up to me and said, "You're leaving." And I said, "No, I'm not." And I was wrong. I Absolutely. left. I, I, I left. You know, through I think one of the smaller windows. It wasn't. <laughs> a few, I th- I think. You rejected, is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, I won't. I won't go back in there for a while until they forget. But. Uh, it's a fascinating career, isn't it? I mean, you you never know what's going to happen from one day to the next. And, uh, and uh, but the one thing that that surprises me a lot is that I'm guessing that TV shows and 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 the movies when they do a private detective series that they must uh, elaborate and and glorify the work of a PI. Surely, I mean, it can't be. Are there any glaring mistakes that you've seen on on cop shows or on PI shows. I mean, who's the guy that lived on the beach in California in a trailer? Uh, uh, Rockford, the Rockford, Rockford Files. Files. What a fantastic series! But yes, how yes. much of that was 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 even close to being reality? Um, probably not much. Um, right. It is glorified, and it's uh, it's entertainment. And uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, investigation, private investigation work is is a lot of routine, and uh, we have to understand the laws that we're, we're working under. That's why I refer to myself as a legal investigator. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a member of the National Association of Legal Investigators for 40 years. Um, and uh, for the most part, uh, 
it's it's a routine job. It's it's not glamorous. I have never been hit over the head and woke up in the arms of a blonde. That hasn't happened, you know. I'm still it's happened to Brian a few times, but <laughs> I should have become a rock singer. I guess. Well, but what, what about brunettes? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, hmm. I'm just being facetious. I'm always. Of course you are. No, I, um, I, I don't. Uh, I don't think I, I'm entertained by the shows too. But Linda and I sit and we watch these shows, and then when these things take place that are that are uh, wild and and just don't happen in real life, we look at each other and kind of smile. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, it, it's like these movies that come out about bands and. Um, you know the Queen story and the Elton John story, and 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 you kind of look at these things, and you know, because I've been there, I've been on tour, I know what it's really like, and it's it's, it's grueling. Just, it's got to be It's very grueling, and it's not much fun involved. The only fun part is walking out on stage to a packed house to a great audience, and that's that's an hour and a half out of your life, out of a twenty-four hour day, and the rest of it is absolutely, utterly, completely boring. It's horrible. It's monotonous. Yes. It's just, it's not what the public think at all. And, uh, you know, but um, moving along just a little bit here, surely with the modern technology now available in the world, with the internet, a lot of people now think they can bypass a private detective and they can find out what they need, the dirt on somebody online. Is that true or is it still take a real skilled professional to get down to the nitty gritty? Well, there are certain things that are on the internet that uh, and the longer that it has existed the more information there is and 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 if someone is is good at that they can they can learn a lot but you see i have what's called restricted access by virtue of my license private investigators uh, can uh, can find out a lot more right i mean i get I'll, i will get your social security number i will get your your driver's license number i'll get your date of birth the last uh, 15 years of your addresses your relatives your associates um how you voted not how you voted but what how you registered to vote mm-hmm. um there's a lot of things that a private investigator has access to very similar to the police. The only thing we don't have, the only thing we don't have access to in certain States such as New Jersey is criminal history. Right. Florida in Florida, you can look up a criminal history and get the picture of the person. You can get everything. It's a very open information state, but New Jersey is very closed and they go from one to the other. Now, so not only are you obviously a a public investigator and a former cop, and a former insurance uh, investigator, I, I, I think. You also become an author, haven't you? You've actually written a couple of books. One fiction, I think. One one fact. One fiction. Is that? Am I right? Well, accidental PI was my first effort. Um, it's a memoir hmm. of my. The first half of it is my days as a police officer and detective in Plainfield. There's a lot of the stories, some of them that we've gone over here today, but there are a lot more. Uh, and the second half of it is the transition to and 40 years of private investigation cases that my wife and I worked on. All true. Um, I also take on the criminal justice system and the civil justice system and insurance companies and corporations uh, for some of the some of the uh, corruption and lacking that goes on. Yeah. So that that book is a memoir and it's true. Now, it got such good reviews on Amazon Um that I decided to write a novel. And one of the reasons I, I uh, contributed to that was Randy Wayne White, who is uh, Florida's Hemingway, as far as I, I'm I've concerned. met Randy. He's a good lad. I, I, I in fact, I've, I've been out for dinner with Randy on a couple of occasions. Yep. A lovely, lovely yep. chap. Good guy. And uh, I took a Ameri- I took, obviously, as an investigator, I could find out where he lived, right? Yeah, so right. So I took, I took uh, a copy of... Uh, accidental pi and i shoved it in his mailbox with a note <laughs> and i said do you remember your first book so <laughs> he's written about 60 now i think uh, yeah and and uh he sent me a, an email a very nice email and said use this any way you like and uh he just wrote a, a very nice testimonial for my book he enjoyed it so that encouraged me uh to continue writing so then i wrote two novels wow yeah, I read, uh, my first novel was Loose Ends, which... Uh, is that still available? It's, it is available yep. on Amazon. Beautiful. Uh, it's in ebooks, Amazon. I've had I've had five Barnes & Noble book signings. Wow. And, uh, yeah. And uh, the second book, which is the most recent one, came out a few months ago, is called The Dementia Conspiracy. People ask me, what's it about? I say, I forgot. You forgot. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's yeah. about uh, it's about uh, corruption in a pharmaceutical company. No, that couldn't be, could it? Wait a minute. No, yeah. no, no, no. It's corruption in a pharmaceutical company. The first one, loose ends, is more courtroom uh, oriented, and uh, and the other one is uh, more more corporate. Hmm. You know how uh, or Murder on the Orient Express and all the you know you're a British guy. So all of the the English uh, uh, mysteries uh, lead you down the path, and when you get to the end, you can't believe that this one over here is the murderer because everybody else looks like they had motive. You know what I'm? You know what yeah, I'm yeah, talking yeah. about? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, I'm totally different. I'm my style of murder mystery is totally different. Right from the get go, everybody knows who the bad guy is, and we follow him down one path, and we follow the protagonist down the other path and the reader gets frustrated with why why the protagonist can't catch the bad guy and then you see the bad guy is thinking about this or that and he's so wrong but it turns out right anyway so it's a it's sort of a convoluted way of looking at it from 30 feet up and uh that's just the way i like to to write my novels well i really enjoyed uh i really enjoyed your your memoir if you will and so i'm I'm gonna go ahead and check those out brian he he really does a good job of putting you in the yeah the flavor of the of the time it gets you in the situation Absolutely. not just not just reading about it which right. i think is is what most crime readers want to they want to feel part of a good story don't they so yes. that, i'll yeah. certainly be in, indulging in that and i have a list of books to read one of which is the bible which of course i'm going to stop bother with but <laughs> Maybe you should start there, Brian. I'm not sure. I would say that's a good start. Yeah, that's a great. Start. Well, I, I don't like writing fiction, uh, reading fiction particularly, but you know, whatever. Oh. Now, anyway, that's a, that's a whole other show if you want to check out. Yeah, I, I, as you can tell, we're getting towards the end of the interview. But um, as a final go round, going back to things like let's let's just stick to marijuana. I, I know that there are several people that are currently in prison on jail sentences like life. Um, certainly, I know uh, so, certain people that are in for 20 years for having one ounce of marijuana on them. That's unreasonable. That's it's, unreasonable. It really is, isn't That's it? Unreasonable. And yet, it, when they were sentenced, which was over 15 years ago, it was considered a deterrent. It evidently is not a deterrent. I know people in all fields of life that smoke marijuana. They're not drug addicts. Some of them just need it to relax. Some of it need, use it for cancer. In fact, I will tell you a true, true story right now. I have a female friend of mine who lives up in Virginia. She has had a horrible case of cancer for the last six or seven years. And basically, she was told to, after six years of different chemos and different remission states and all the rest of it, she was done. She was worn out. And the doctor said, you need to go home and you need to make your plans because we've we've done as much as we possibly can for you. And so she she called me up and she was crying and distraught and said, Brian, you know, it's, you know, and I said, well, look, would you do me a favor? You're going to boohoo me. I know you are, but I want you to try marijuana oil. It's sometimes known as a, a guy called Rick Simpson, who is, who is a wonderful guy. Uh, Rick Simpson's oil made from the leaf of marijuana plants. And she agreed tr- to try it. She had to find marijuana up in Virginia illegally. Um, she did it and she's been on it for six weeks. She is now completely cured of cancer. There is no cancer left in her body. Now, tell me that's wrong. Tell me that someone should be sent to prison for that. No, I, I can't. Uh, I wouldn't know how to address that. I think I think that uh, if she, I don't know how the marijuana cured her cancer. I can see where it would have would have relieved her pain. No, it, it it goes. That's what I mean. It goes a lot further. The terpenes they call them terpenes, the different ingredients in in every sort of marijuana. Some have predominantly different terpenes and and and, and the rest mm-hmm. of it. But that's a fact. She she called me uh, just a few days ago, crying her heart out, and I thought, oh no, she's got more bad news. But no, she said, Brian, nobody can believe my turnaround. My condition is now. I don't have any cancer in me at all. And this girl was covered in tumors all through her body. It's gone. It's gone. So let that be a warning to people that really think that marijuana is is is, is a really, really necessary bad drug. Because it really isn't. It, it can be used for the benefit of humans. It can be used for the benefit of animals, too, if, if, used, if used properly. So... 
But I'd love to thank you very, very much, Dave, for, for coming on. It's been a marvel. Just to even talk to a private detective for me is like, you know, it's magic. It's it's a magic part of the world that you don't ever think you're going to get involved in or know the back streets and, and, and all the backstories and, and the rest of it. And, 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 I, and I applaud you for your long career in the police force and the insurance business. And, and as a writer, I'm going to partake in, in getting a couple of your books and having a damn good read. I would like to thank you so much for coming on. I really do. It's, it's, uh, it's been a tremendous privilege. And uh, what can I say? David Watts, thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you. It's Thanks been a lot. fun. It's, it's, it's been fun for sure. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. We'll have you back sometime, some someday. Thank you very much. All right. Good day. Good day. You've been listening to Brian Howe with How About That? And here we go. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks Goodbye. for tuning in. Yeah.